0: You are listening to Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect. It cannot be complained about by my co-host, John Siracusa. I'm Dan Benjamin. This is episode number 28. We'd like to say a very quick thank you to one of our sponsors, Campaign Monitor. They've just released a gorgeous update to their email editor, letting you design even more flexible email templates to celebrate They're giving away 100 free templates by some of the best designers on the web. Just go to campaignmonitor.com slash templates. You can also catch a demo of their new editor in action at the same address. Go check them out, campaignmonitor.com slash templates. Bandwidth for July 2011 has been provided by Midas Green Technologies, virtual private servers submerged in oil. Check them out at midasgreentech.com. So, John, this is a big week. Do you know why this is a big week?
1: Why is this a big week?
0: And this is a big week because this is the week after your line review came out and a week after we did the uh a week after we did the show. All right? It is. This is exciting stuff. Sure. And I have some good news for you. In fact, uh I think I think this is a, you've set a record here whether you know it or not. A big record, got set. More downloads in one week of our last show than any show in the history of this network five by five
1: The power of a lion dan
0: over one million downloads of your show did you see the email that i sent you
1: i did i saw it
0: congratulations are in order to you sir congratulations to you biggest week ever biggest week of your life
1: (laughs) i don't know about that but yeah sure
0: it's a big week come on did you laugh was that human human emotion coming through
1: yeah, it's exciting. You You've know, updated it'll be your interesting programming. Interesting to see how much of it is sustained. You know, this is kind of a uh, a lumpy type of phenomenon where once every two years this big review comes out, lots of activity and traffic, and then it settles down. So we'll see.
0: I don't know. I think we you may have just earned yourself a handful of new listeners in the process. I hope so. Well, I hope so too? I think so. I know so.
1: I always wonder what my uh, like my glass ceiling is on uh, readers or listeners because the things I talk about and the way I talk about them probably have a pretty narrow appeal. So, oh, so like see, I disagree say, with you. I if if you said, like, like how many appeal. people in the entire world who are not related to me would be interested in listening to me talk about this stuff?
0: Apparently quite a few.
1: Well, and what percentage of that do I already have? It's the same thing with Apple. Like, you're always wondering, uh, what could Mac market share possibly be? Like, what is the, what is the ceiling on that? Could it ever be 90%, 50%, 25%? What is the point after which apple 's philosophy of making not the cheapest possible computer that you can make when does that become a limiting factor for them? You know what I mean same thing with me so I think there's plenty of room for both the Mac and me to grow
0: well i think I certainly think so i don't i don't think you're anywhere near a glass ceiling
1: I, I always think about the people who uh, subscribe to Gruber's podcast and read his thing and follow him on twitter mm. and I wonder what percentage like if someone follows John Gruber on Twitter, I say, why isn't that person following me? Because we talk about the same type of things, but he talks about them on his website and I talk about them on Twitter. Right. If you follow him on Twitter, you're hearing about baseball and you know, all sorts of other topics. And he, and he doesn't even tweet that much. Maybe that's why he has so many followers. But if you read his website, he talks about Apple stuff all the time. Uh, if you follow me on Twitter, I talk about Apple stuff all the time. I, I wonder what percentage of his followers like that's probably like my glass ceiling. I could never possibly have more than he has, but of the people who follow him and listen to him, it seems like there should be some significant overlap between uh, those people and the people who'd be interested in what I have to say. So I have a long way to go.
0: I, I would, I think that makes sense, but in a way, I mean, what you do and what he does, I see him as very, very different, very different things. I mean, he. His whole, like for him, Twitter is, is at best supplementary. But for you, that's sort of the primary way that you, you communicate.
1: Yeah, that's true. I mean...
0: It's like your I, second I think, second email.
1: I think that's like a a, a demerit, though, because people don't like <laughs> it when you fill their Twitter feed with stuff. It's much easier to follow somebody who tweets every couple of days one thing. You know, you don't have the urge to unfollow that person if they're not filling your stream with a bunch of crap. Whereas if you follow me every day, there's going to be one or two tweets probably. And if you don't like those one or two tweets, you'd be like, why am I following this guy? I'm not interested in this stuff and you unfollow.
0: So yeah. You're saying, you're saying with you, you know what you're going to get. You're going to get kind of occasionally geeky Apple related crap.
1: Yeah. Like, and it's, I think it's similar to the stuff that, that Gruber posts. Just without his, the baseball. His, yeah. At least in his link list, he'll, a lot of the stories that he has on his site, I will also tweet about uh, and vice versa. You know, the technology stories of the day related to Apple. Uh, so it's just a different uh, medium to get that information.
0: Well, anyway, at least for this week, regardless of, of what your glass ceiling is, this week you are number one. Revel in it
1: yeah all those people who uh, subscribe should also leave a review because my review count is still way lower than the talk show as well. Okay. a lot of catching up to do I'm starting to catch you in terms of twitter followers though but i I noticed still that
0: you did have a nice boost there recently
1: yeah, but, but you're still growing fast too, so I don't think I'll ever catch you
0: I think that's okay i i'm I'm always surprised because based on you know based on the, the sort of polls that I've done. There are quite a few people who listen to the shows that just don't use Twitter, or don't don't do much on Twitter.
1: Yeah, that's weird, you know? It is
0: weird. Shame on them. So right, for, so, so so hold on. Syracusa on Twitter. That's you, right? Yep, that's me. And just to keep the count going good, I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter. We don't want John to get too far ahead. Mm-hmm. I think we should be tied. Let's try and get tied.
1: We'll see. Uh, tied I think up. That's the thing about catching anybody on Twitter. If you look at the growth graphs, you think, oh, gee, I'm growing and I'm getting these good boosts. But then you look at somebody else who has maybe 10 times as many followers and they're growing even faster than you are. So you'll never catch them. So we're going to talk about lines more today.
0: I think we, we have to. And the first thing, I have some FU. All right. I don't often get to do the FU. But or at least I don't get to contribute as much. I'd like to start off by saying... You and I both last week, me more than you even, complained about this uh, this window animation thing where you, uh, you're, you're running line, you open a, a new window for an app, whether that's, you know, command N to open a new window or whatever it is, right? You run that. And the window starts at that little center point and you get this this animation that shows it sort of growing from the center point of where the fully grown window will be, Right? And you and I both said this thing is this is the worst because it uh, it actually makes things feel slower. You're waiting and watching for a window to open. And even if it takes exactly the same amount of time, as you said, same amount of time to open a new window that it would without the animation, the animation somehow works to make it feel slower. So we got uh, we said, please tell us how to get rid of this thing. This is terrible. Get rid of this thing. And uh, who was it that wrote in to us? We got an email and I think I didn't know that you had already tweeted. I would have just retweeted you. But I, we both sort of tweeted it, and the guy didn't say who his Twitter name was, but was his name Trevor or something like that?
1: No, it was, it was actually in the chat room, and it was either during the show or just after the show. Oh. I just wasn't paying enough attention to the chat room. It was Tomas Franzen. I don't know if I'm mangling his last name. It's T-O-M-A-S-F at Twitter, and I didn't see his Twitter name yet. So he posted it in the chat room. Right. He emailed us through the feedback form. And I believe he also tweeted it, so he blanketed all media. And I believe okay. he was the first one to tell us about this thing. And he actually he didn't actually look it up or find it on some website or whatever. He did the thing that people do to find these things, which is you just uh, put a little hook in one of the methods that reads from property lists, and then you uh, try, I guess, trigger the animation and see which property list property it reads. Pretty cool. Yeah, it's I a mean, good way you, to do the, it. There's lots of different ways to do this, but obviously he's a, a programmer and knows how to. I think he called it swizzling the method, but uh, <laughs> swizzling swi- the method. Swizzle is such an overloaded word in computer science. If you go look up like the Wikipedia page or Google it or whatever, you'll see that swizzle has meant so many different things in so many different contexts. But but yeah, the bottom line is you put a little hook in so you can see when a method runs, what it's actually doing. And he fa- he actually found the thing. Um, and then shortly after that, I tweeted it, and uh, and then once I found out his Twitter name, I gave him credit uh, through through his. Uh, by putting his ad name in an X follow up and then you tweeted it. And then we got more and more emails and it started appearing in articles. And even as of today, even this morning, people were still emailing me and saying, Hey, I found this thing. So thanks to everybody who is, uh, sending in, uh, this tip because it is a good one. I actually put it in the show notes for the last show, because like I said, I found it right after the show ended. And Uh. I figured if people go look at the show notes, it's good for them to see it. Uh, I linked to the secrets application website. do you know about secrets?
0: yeah secrets is a great app for people who don't know about it it's essentially it's an app, but it it shows up as a preference pane right system pref yep and uh it it it's called secrets because it has all of these secret or in some cases secret or undocumented or little known settings so that instead of having to open terminal and type you know defaults and then some long string of characters which might frighten some uh some people. This presents all of these great little tweaks and app changes and undocumented, you know, things that aren't available from applications' own preference panes. It allows you to just go in there and check some boxes, and it, it even restarts things for you. It, it's a very handy little app. Is it in yeah. Secrets yet? Is this in Secrets?
1: Yeah, that's where – I mean, it was put in Secrets by somebody else. It was put in by uh, Jen's – Aiton or something like that. He's, I believe, he's the guy who talking moose. He's another well-known oh, yeah, Mac talking programmer. moose. Yeah. So, so you can contribute, or maybe just the stickies app, I don't know, but you can contribute uh, to this database. This is the key feature of secrets. Is it's not just a preference pane that has a list of stuff. It reads from an online database of secrets that anyone can contribute to. So you download the secrets application once and you just hit the little update secrets button within it and it will pull the latest set of secrets that people have figured out from this shared database. So it's much better than remembering this site had this tip and this site had that tip or Googling for what you think it is. Eventually all of these things find their way into secrets and you can you know search in real time and find the things that have the keywords. So if you just search for animation or something, you would find this one. You can see, and it's not just for the system, it's for individual applications like they have ones for I'm just looking to list now. They have ones for the DVD player, for the Fission app, for uh, Acorn, just third-party apps, Apple apps, everything. So I highly – and by the way, it's free. Uh, so I highly recommend Secrets. It's in the show notes. Or if it's not, I'll put it there. It's uh, secrets.blacktree.com.
0: Great, great little great little app. Yep. It's a good tip. Shame on them for not sponsoring. Oh, wait, they can It's free. So that's all right. Uh, great tip, though. And it's in there now. That's what you're saying. So we've been getting a lot of emails from people still saying – have you have you heard? This is how you do it. Um, so we appreciate all of those is what you're also saying, right? We Thank you for saying Yeah, because it.
1: we asked to, to be told and, you know. They told us. The, the magic of the podcast, that shows the power of hypercritical versus the power of the article that millions of people read. And nobody, nobody. despite the fact that, that I had said, I really look forward to knowing this. And usually when I ask for something within a Mac OS 10 review, I got a flood of email. Nobody sent an email. And I was afraid that those settings didn't even exist but then the show mention it once immediately we get the answer.
0: So maybe you should quit writing and just do more shows. Yeah, maybe. So, uh we should also mention there were a handful of people I I don't remember if this was email more or Twitter, but it, in in one or both of those places, a number of people said to me, you know, the 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 typical devil devil's advocate which is n- Not only don't they make it seem slower, they are clarifying the meaning of what's happening. And we have tons and tons of people on our network or where we work or whatever it is, wherever this person or people have you, that this actually clarifies what's going on, that there are so many people out there who they click something and they they don't know that a window is opening. And they sit there wondering for a long time, has a window opened? Is something happening?
1: I don't know. I saw some Windows person talking about that, and the Windows person had a good point as it relates to Windows. I don't use Windows much, but I, I use it enough to understand what this person was saying. Um, it was that when, when you use Windows, especially older versions of Windows, Windows 7 is apparently better in this regard. And I never used Vista, so I don't know. But like an XP and earlier versions, if you did something in Windows, opened an application either by double-clicking it or by clicking the little uh, the taskbar icon in the taskbar, the quick launch area, or anything like that. You'd click it, and you'd be like, no, and nothing would happen on the screen. You would say, well, so did it register that quick? Did I <laughs> did I miss? Is it is the application launching? Like, there was no bouncing dock icon. There was no little rubber band animation of the application opening. Uh, and you'd get in a situation where people would doubt and then click again, and then you'd end up with two instances of IE launching instead of one because you weren't sure if the first one registered or not. There's, there was long delay between the time you click and the time something happens, and during that time, nothing visual is happening on the screen. Now... The Mac has never suffered from that problem because, of course, on Mac OS 10, you have the little bouncing, and that is a clear indicator that, yeah, yeah, we got your click. We're trying to do what it is that you asked, but it's going to take a while. Meanwhile, watch this little thing bounce. So it's a clear indication that something is happening. And in the old classic Mac OS, when you double-click an application, there would be this little rubber band animation, which would be basically like an outline of a rectangle that would start small at the origin of your click and get bigger and bigger and bigger to show you, hey, this thing that you double-clicked, it's launching now. Um, and in the very old days despite the fact that this rubber band animation was there from day one, you could also hear the floppy disk grinding and the or the activity light blinking. There was always some sort of visual, physical indication that your thing started. Uh, but Windows kind of got into that uncomfortable zone where the physical manifestations of your action became less obvious because you know, hard drives got tucked away inside the machines. Activity lights weren't as obvious. The computer was uh, behind the monitor or under the desk or something. Floppy disks went away, and you couldn't really tell is something happening. Uh, and that's one of the things that people talked about. The other one was that the the specific animation that we were complaining about and the specific animation that I have a video of in my review was an instance of a window starting from a small dot in its final position and zooming to its full size. So there was no indication of where this window came from. It's like this window is going to appear at this position and it will start at small at that position and it will eventually get full size in that position. So the animation, my argument and your argument was that it was not giving you any additional information. It wasn't saying from where did this window come from. It was just saying here's the window, it's going to appear here. And had the window appeared fully formed in that same position, it would have provided the same information. Uh, One person argued that they like the animation because it draws your eye more than if the window just appeared by itself. Uh, I would say that that's one of the things against it because you do want to know that a new window appeared on the screen, but this window is going to appear in front of all other windows anyway. uh, And by... By animating, it draws your eye too much, I think. Now, the, the idea was that like when you hit Command N, which is what I was doing in that video, there's no origin. Like it's not The window doesn't fly out of your keyboard. There's no way it can animate from where you issued the command. But when you type Command N, the computer has no idea where you're looking. And that was the person's argument was like, yeah, it has no idea where you're looking. So it's trying to say, hey, this is where the window is going to appear to indicate to you where it's going to appear. Well, because it doesn't know where I'm looking, say I'm looking elsewhere because i'm doing some other tasks that's the beauty of keyboard commands is that you can fire off command n from muscle memory while also starting your next task which is looking over to the side to drag an icon or looking in another window or reading something and as soon as that animation appears your eyes are drawn towards where the animation is you're losing the advantage of being able to fire off command n to make a new window while you're in the middle well you're immediately off doing some of the tasks like you you initiate the macro in your head which makes your fingers do command n and as soon as you issue that command, it's like fire and forget, you're off to your next task. But as soon as the animation starts playing, the primordial lizard brain mammalian avoid the saber-toothed tiger hunting you. Sorry, please don't write me in if saber-tooth tigers did not live at the same time as humans, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, you know, makes your eye makes your eye be drawn to this animation in the car. Like, what <laughs> animation? You know, more so than just the window appearing. So in addition to it feeling slow, it's it's pulling your eye away from what you were trying to do. Now, uh, the same people pointed out that if you go to the File menu and select New, the animation begins at the File menu. And I think that's actually a useful animation because who's going to the File menu and selecting File New? Novice users, right? And novice users are the ones who need the most hand-holding to understand this command that you initiated has produced this window. So that animation starts from the menu that you just use, and the window you know, the animation slides over to where the window is finally going to appear, connecting your action with the resulting window. But advanced users are the ones who are all going to be hitting command N, And they don't need their eye drawn to where the new window appears because they know a new window is going to appear. It's going to be on top of all other windows anyway, unless it's a microscopic window, which I, Mac OS X really doesn't like you to make small windows anyway. It's going to be obvious where it appears. Uh, that animation is the one that drives me nuts. Uh, because I make new documents all the time, you know, in BB Editor, you know, any other thing, constantly making new text windows for just scratch areas and then discarding them and making new ones. So I'm very glad that this animation could be turned off. Uh, it, some of the other animations, like the bounce animation, where a, a dialogue comes up where the it animates from its small size to a size slightly larger than mm. its final size and then shrinks back down, sort of like it's bouncing at you. For alerts and errors and stuff like that, since they're rare and and they're not manually initiated, they have slightly more of a reason to draw your attention, especially for novice users who might not even notice that a dialogue appeared. For advanced users, I still like the ability to turn that off, uh, but it's not the same thing as a user-initiated action triggering an animation that makes things feel slower. So, uh, I will definitely have this setting turned off.
0: Yeah, I I turned it off. Now, do you think that the inspiration for this came to kind of create I mean you were I feel like you were leading up to this to create parody. you know when you when you double click a file let's say you've got a text file on your desktop and you double click it there's sort of that animation of the text file flying toward you you know what I'm saying the icon getting a little bigger
1: yeah that's just to indicate that it registered your click it doesn't it doesn't fly towards where the document will appear no it just sort of just
0: jumps toward you do you feel that, that this down. is somehow getting parity with that in some way?
1: No, it's just an addition of animation. Like they they love animation ever since core animation was introduced. They've been adding it everywhere they possibly can. Uh core animation just makes it a little bit too easy, I think, to add animation because you're like, "You know what? This is an animatable property. Why not animate it? It's really easy from a programming perspective you now to animate stuff so they have they're they have to think less hard about, "Well, do we really want this animation because it's going to be a lot of work to make it?" It's not a lot of work, and you end up with animations everywhere. Uh, and sometimes they
0: go over the line a little bit. So uh, let, let's do our first sponsor. And you know what? What's cool is uh, if you're in the chat room, if you join us live, sometimes we do things like this when, uh, when we have like, especially like when we have an iOS sponsor, they're going to be give. we, we have uh, a whole bunch of uh, codes to give away. Faith is going to be putting those into the, not all of them this time. we get to spread them out over some of the other shows, but she'll be putting a few into the, uh, into the chat room. So if you're not in the chat room, go join the chat room. You can go to 5 x slash live. And there's like a button that says chat with us or link or something. Go there. And uh, Faith will be dropping these in. Sometimes we do it over Twitter. Today we're going to do some in the chat room. And uh, the sponsor is, uh, is WX. Now this is uh, by a company called Hunter Research and Technology. We've had some of their apps on there. And they do really, really cool apps. They do iOS apps and Mac apps. And what I'm going to tell you about mainly today is WX. This is an award-winning U.S. weather app. I know we have some international, you know, listeners, so maybe you got to pressure this guy to do an international version, but it's a U.S. weather app. It works on the Mac, iPad, iPhone. It was uh, named the 2009 Mac Gem by Mac World Magazine. Gyro Lens is another one. This is an innovative camera app that levels photos in real time and puts an end to crooked shots. I'm guilty of that, especially on the iPhone. And, uh... Theodolite. Now, this is a cool app. This is the one that, that makes uh, your iPhone or your iPad into essentially into uh, Luke Skywalker's viewfinder uh, from uh, Empire Strikes Back in the beginning, you know, when he's out there with the Imperial probe droid. You know what I'm talking about, John? Are you off getting
1: it I do. Um, I was considering whether I should do my imitation of the probe droid, but i decided it. not no, to. No, no, we no, got to have decided it. not to.
0: Okay, it. show's over. Show's you can over. try it. That's pretty good. Let's hear yours.
1: Oh. Uh, is- All
0: right. So, this is a, a top selling one. I, I have to tell you, I went to I went to the, the author, of WX, and I said, Listen, I said, uh, This uh, Theodolite, you, you've, you've got to make a game out of this because I'll sit there and I'll put this on, on, uh, on my boy's iPad or on his. Uh, on a, he has a little iPhone. It's like a game. He can run around, you know, like I said, if you just had something that shot, you know, could shoot things. You know, it would be like a virtual reality, you know, like a uh, augmented reality kind of game. He said, "I don't know if that would sell." But anyway, so if you want that, you can pressure him into it. But this has this is like a viewfinder with a range finder and in, inclina, inclinometer. How do you say that? A compass, a GPS map. I mean, it's got everything. So you can find out about all of this stuff. Uh, read about their development services. They do that too at hrtapps.com. dot com. Go check them out. And if you're in the chat room, Faith will give out. Yeah, you know, Faith. Maybe give out one of the one of the WX uh, for Mac, one of the iPad ones, one of the gyro lens, just like one of each. Drop them. Maybe a couple of the uh, theater light. That's it. Thanks to them for sponsoring hrtapps.com.
1: I'm looking at that app on the website. It really does look like it really does uh, the thing from. Uh, it's almost like that he could make extra money if he actually licensed from Lucasfilm the exact appearance of. That thing i'm surprised he doesn't get sued already because it's it's, it's so close weird. but no yeah, i think it's, it's different enough george lucas oh, yeah, has bigger it, fish it, to fry
0: he's worried more about who shot first
1: yeah or that guy making uh prop helmets for stormtroopers right did you read that story this yeah. week
0: Yep. do we have that in the show notes tell people what you're talking about
1: so some um, one of the guys who made the original helmets for star wars the star- stormtrooper helmets decided that the, it, he, he was employed he, he was
0: employed by lucas to make these things isn't right. he worked there
1: And he still had the mold from when he made the original ones that appear in the movie. So he said, hey, I bet I could clean up these molds and make a couple of Stormtrooper helmets and sell them. And then, of course, Lucas gets wind of it and is all cranky and tries to sue him. And he eventually won his case uh, that he is allowed to make and sell these helmets from these molds. Because uh, I guess a lot of the reason he won is that he's not in the U.S. He's in the U.K., and he has no assets in the U.S. So U.S. laws don't apply to him. And probably right. his employment contract with Lucas was such that Lucas didn't say, oh, we reserve the rights to all these molds and you don't own them and blah, blah, blah. Like a modern contract would have said they just hired him to do it and didn't claim ownership of those molds or the intellectual property that they represent. Uh, you know, So it was kind of a victory against uh, the empire for this one guy. And hes it's not like he's becoming a millionaire off of it. He was just selling some to make some money. I should find that link and put it in the show notes. Did you
0: buy one? You I did. did not. You did. Come on. No, they're, they're, I think
1: they're. I think they're expensive. Like, as I imagine. Yeah, but would so be.
0: is your plasma TV.
1: Yeah, but uh, the plasma TV I watch every day, and I helmet. get. You I know what? I, I have a no.
0: prediction for what's going to happen next. WWDC.
1: Someone's going to get me an uh, actual stormtrooper helmet.
0: How much are these things? We'll work on it. We'll race it. We'll do. I don't know. Racing.
1: I think. I think they're thousands of dollars because I guess they're collectors. Items. Would you wear it? Like every day.
0: To to, to and from work, yeah, like a, a hat, baguette, like you right. know, in the nineteen forties and fifties, you know, any any man who had any kind of decency would be wearing a, a nice fedora. Would you wear Would you wear this to work? As you can, no, I
1: think I think I displayed a sculpture. I think that was part of the trial, of like arguing whether it was a piece of sculpture, like art, or whether it was a costume or something like that.
0: Would you ever wear a full a full you know like a a full on stormtrooper suit?
1: I don't, I can't think of any context when that would happen. Like a Comic Con, if we sent you, you to
0: PAX or Comic Con or something.
1: Yeah, but I wouldn't, like, I'm not one of those people who dresses up.
0: That's what I'm trying to find out if you are. No. When you LARP, you dress up, though.
1: You're the LARPer, not me. I've never LARPed. So you say.
0: I really haven't. I did go to uh, a medieval fair as a kid. Does that count? I wasn't role playing, but I, I was close. dressed up as a knight. <laughs> I was ten years old. It wasn't that weird. Everybody dressed up. The whole the whole class we had to get we had to dress, you know, we had to make our, our, you know, uniforms and whatever they were. You know, so some people went as a knight, some people went as, you know, a jester or whatever. I don't know, whatever goes on. I didn't care. Everybody was dressed up. I was ten years old. Then someone threw up on the bus on the way home. It was the worst thing. And the way the teacher tried to counteract this. The way she tried to mask the smell of the vomit on the tour bus on the way home, on the three-hour drive home from Sarasota back to South Florida, was to spray her perfume, <laughs> which combined with the smell of vomit and became something much, much worse.
1: That's called childhood, Dan.
0: Well, this is the closest thing to LARP. This is my LARPing experience. We didn't role play, although I was knighted. <laughs> I'll bet you were. Not in the way you but, mean. It-
1: is that code for something? No, it
0: is not. Absolutely not, as far as I know.
1: All right. So, what other topics about Lion do you want to cover? I have a big list here, but <laughs> you can pick your. I want me to read off my list and you can pick which one.
0: Yes, of course.
1: Okay. Sandboxing, ARC, HFS Plus. Wait,
0: slow down. Uh, Hold on. Sandboxing, ARC. I think you covered ARC b- well beyond where I want to. I mean, that you killed that in the article. I don't want to do that.
1: You don't want to do it at all? No. All right. Well, we'll see, if they, we'll see if there's a revolt from the listeners. I did get a lot of questions about it. Uh, high DPI stuff, uh, the linking, uh, general linking in the article, uh, and then any other topics that I didn't cover in the review that you want to talk about?
0: Well, I would definitely like to talk about sandboxing because I, don't, I, think, I think it's an interesting topic. I think they've done a lot of work behind the scenes on it, and I think it's something that regular human beings would actually benefit from, even though none of them listen to the show. Uh, that this is something that people could know about.
1: Somebody else covered arc. Uh, was it Marco? I think who talked about it.
0: I don't. I. I. To be honest, I kind of tune out during the arc stuff.
1: No sandboxing. I mean,
0: a little bit, yeah. but not the not the way you do.
1: Yeah, I'll cover. I think it's going to be covered. You really
0: want to talk about sand, arc? Sand fine, ground. your show. No, I'll, I'll, no I'll talk we'll about, do whatever you want. It's your no, show. I'll, I'll talk about sandbox. Mister million, million Downloads. We'll do whatever about. you want
1: for the people who don't listen to uh, Marco's show or whatever show this was on. So sandboxing is uh, a feature that existed in a more limited form in Snow Leopard. Uh, It was introduced in Snow Leopard, I think. Uh, And Apple mostly used it for their daemon processes. For those that don't know, daemon processes are processes that run in the background continuously, either when you're logged in or just continuously when the machine is booted. And they perform services like they This this font demons and caching demons and all sorts of things that other processes communicate with to get information about the system. Uh, And since these processes run all the time, since a lot of them run with user access to multiple users' files or the whole system or whatever, hang
0: on on a sec. Your your audio is breaking up on me. What are you doing there? Are you on the FiOS?
1: It's not. I'm on FiOS. mic or
0: just a- No, it's not your mic. it's uh let me try it. let me try it back. Maybe Skype is playing games with us.
1: Right.
0: Hang on. We'll get him back.
1: Let's
0: see if we can get him back. Two of each face. You can do two of each. Try and get John back here. This says connecting. And yeah, never you know, you never know what uh what the cause could be with Skype. Wish we could move away from Skype entirely. And I have to I have to be honest, this uh it could be this stupid uh this stupid router that they gave us. Can they still hear us in the chat room? Yes, I think so. I I'm wireless. See, this is that's terrible. Who knows who knows what this is? I, I'm 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 really getting I'm really getting fed up with this thing, John.
1: I say we have to blame this on your end. No, this who- is
0: this is definitely my on that time. Now, there's something weird. It's like it, I've got to I've got to go in and mess with this router that they gave me. It's a piece of piece of garbage. I'm gonna have to get them to change it out or something because it periodically it's like you, everything will be fine, and then you'll uh, then you'll lose it'll it'll like the DHCP lease. Will expire and you won't renew. And I'll have to go into network preferences and renew it.
1: Now, what is that? Don't know. Low quality equipment.
0: Seriously? What do they send you this stuff? Anyway, we don't need to waste time. So please continue your thought. I'm sorry, dude. To-
1: All right. So, sandboxing. Uh, so, as I was saying, sandboxing was introduced in Snow Leopard as a way to isolate demon processes to some degree. I don't remember what the details of the sandboxing were, but you could limit their privileges in a few. Ways it wasn't really promoted as a feature for application developers yet. It was just a framework for making daemon processes not be able to have full access to the file system or be able to do you know everything that a process can normally do with uh, the privileges of a super user or whatever user it's running as. Uh, so in Lion, they've greatly expanded the sandboxing and are now promoting it for use by applications. Uh, and the idea is that applications have to declare the things that they're expected to do. So if you have an application that expects to open a network connection, you would say I need to be able to open network connections. Or if your application expects incoming network connections, it says I need to be able to open a port to listen for incoming network connections. I need access to the movies folder because that's where I'm going to read stuff from, or I need access to the user's home directory or you know there's not that many of them. It's not really fine grain. I think there's only like 30 or something. Something, you know, there's less than 100 of these entitlements, they're called, where you declare what your application is supposed to do. Uh, And as part of the Mac App Store review process, come November, your application must be sandboxed. And what that means is that if you submit to the Mac App Store after November, you must have sandboxing enabled, and then you must have this list of entitlements that say what your application is expected to do. Uh, and you can't just say okay fine i'll list all the entitlements because then i don't have to worry about the sandboxing so much. I just need access to everything. I need access to the whole file system, I need access to the network, everything, everything. What the, what Apple will do in the review process is say, you know, hey, this is a weather application. Why do you need access why do you need to open a port for listening uh on the network? Why do you need complete access to the file system for your weather application? And they'll reject it and they'll say it doesn't seem like your application should need this entitlement to do its job, please explain to us why you think it does. Uh, and what they're trying to do is reduce the surface area of of attack so that if one of these applications is exploited by a buffer overflow or some other kind of bug, you can only do the things that the application is uh, restricted to doing. So if the application doesn't need to open a network port as part of its normal operation, if the application is exploited, the exploit can't open a network port either. Now. To go further than that, what what they also want application developers to do is something called privilege separation, where instead of having deciding what their application has to do, it has to read and write files, it has to talk on the network, it has to, you know, uh, have access to the camera and the microphone, whatever things that that the application needs to do. Instead of taking that and saying, let me just make a list and then give my application these entitlements, what Apple wants you to do is to break up your application into individual sort of sub programs or sub applications that only do a specific task. So for example, in Apple's on QuickTime player, it has to decode video. Uh, and decoding video is a notoriously difficult uh, process that has to be high performance. And there have been a lot of exploits in sort of decoding of compressed information because that code has to be very fast and tends right. to be uh, vulnerable to buffer overflows because it can't constantly be checking bounds on everything because it has to be fast. And the, the algorithms are complex and the code is complex. So what Apple does is they say, we're going to offload the decoding of video to a separate process, and that process doesn't need to have any access to the file system because we will feed it the data, over, you know, through memory through uh, inter-process communication from the parent thing. And this that process doesn't need to have any access to the network. You know, it can be extremely isolated. The only thing that that process sees is data given to it by its parent process, and then it returns the data, all happening in memory. No privileges for anything. So if there is some sort of exploit in so, like the H.264 decoding algorithm or something, or there's some sort of bug there that if you feed a, a maliciously created video to the video player, suddenly it can take over your computer. Well, that that video will find itself taking over an external process that has almost no privileges and can't do anything. Uh, and that, that's what they want application developers to do, is to think about their application, and instead of giving their app the superset of all entitlements that it needs to do its job, break it down into sub-applications, each of which only needs a few of those entitlements. So the, the parent application itself would have very, very few entitlements, and then the sub-applications would have the, the other few all spread out throughout them. Uh, now, splitting up your application like this is kind of a pain, because you're like, oh, so where do I put these other executables? How do I launch them? How do I feed them data? How do I reap the process when they're done? Uh, how do I know, you know, how do I communicate back and forth with them? Do I have to make my own proposals It's kind of annoying. So what, what Apple has done is created this XPC framework i guess you'd call it that manages this for you it's sort of a system for creating separate executables that get stored in your applications bundle and what you do is operate at a very high level where you basically kind of call a method that will trigger the creation of this separate process on demand, handle the communication with it, and handle cleaning up that process when it's done so you don't have to deal with those details, making it easier for you to, you know, everyone knows you should do this privilege separation thing. Yeah, I, if you see the presentation, you so say, yeah, that's great and all, but I don't want to deal with the details. So Apple is trying to deal with as many of the details as possible to encourage the most number of developers to do this. Now, this isn't, you can sandbox your application and not do this at all, but Apple really wants to encourage people to do this because they think it's a better way from from a security perspective to design an application. Sandboxing, I was just talking about uh, the XPC thing uh, and splitting up your application into pieces. Right. Uh, so the, the interesting part of this is that, as you can imagine on the Mac, almost every application these days seems like it should need full access to the file system. Because how else do you open... Files like it does. The application can't know where your files are. They could be anywhere. They could be on your desktop, in your Documents folder, or on, on a server volume. It's just expected that Mac applications can open up any file, and so it seems like every Mac application, or at least some subcomponent of every Mac application, needs to have complete access to the file system, and that is a, a big vulnerability because if that app is exploited. Uh, by uh, you know some sort of maliciously created file that it opens, or any other mechanism where uh, over the network, or any other mechanism where you can take control of this application, then you have complete access to all that user's files. You could, for example, recursively de- delete their entire home directory, or you know implant a virus somewhere in there that launches every time they log in, or do all sorts of nasty things. So Apple's solution to this is to provide a, a an intermediate, a trusted intermediary that provides access to the full file system, but only in response to explicit user actions. So for example, when you go to the file menu and select open or hit command O, what it does is it hands off uh, operation to this PowerBox daemon. And the PowerBox daemon has access to the full file system, but your application doesn't. And the only way you get to the PowerBox thing is by explicit user action. Because you selected open from the file menu or you hit command O, it wasn't something that the program did. It was a user input that went through, you know, the input mechanism, the event mechanism, and caused, uh, you know, the open dialog to come up. That is a signal to the application that yes, this is a user doing this and not a program. And then you're handed off to the PowerBox application, which says, okay, I will poke a little hole in your sandbox to allow you access to whichever file that, that I pick. Now, the, the application isn't in control. The PowerBox application says, okay, you hang on over there. Let me take over. I'll let the guy pick the application that he wants, and when he picks it, I will give that one application back to you. So the application still doesn't have complete access to the file system. It just says, okay, I've, I've handed off control to this intermediary. It will give me the file that I want. It can't. It, the application can't tell Powerbox which file to open. It's, it waits for Powerbox to tell it, here's the file that the user selected. Uh, and that's the way that they want applications, basically no Mac applications Just say, I need full access to the file system, unless it's like a disk checker or something where it has to scan your whole disk, that would be a legitimate use. But for general applications, just because you need to open a file, you don't need full access to the file system. There's this intermediary that will do it for you. And this applies to things like dragging an icon onto an application in the dock or in the finder, all those mechanisms that are an explicit user action trigger the, the uh, use of this PowerBox intermediary and are explicitly allowed because it was done by a user. So this is a kind of, this is not a new innovation. Many systems use this kind of security model, but it's the first time it's been coming to Mac OS 10 and Apple's really pushing it hard. In the article I talked about the carrot and the stick. The carrot is do this because your application will be more secure. We're providing these really nice APIs, like the XPC thing for managing external applications. We'll take care of the details for you. We've done all this work for you. That's the carrot. The stick is, if you want to be in the Mac App Store, we're going to start requiring this November, so you best get used to it. Uh, I don't know, a lot of legacy Mac applications have expectations way beyond uh, the things that sandboxing allows. And one of the big ones is Apple Events. Uh, you can do a lot with Apple Events. You can communicate from one application to the other and make applications do almost anything. And some applications are built around Apple Events. Uh, for example, BBEdit. Makes extensive use of them, and this was a best practice from Apple many, many years ago. They said, "Yeah, do everything with Apple events, because then your your scriptability is great, and other applications can communicate with you, and so on and so forth." But from a security perspective, it's not great to do that. So there's severe restrictions on app cross-application Apple events, and even I think within application Apple events uh, when you're in a sandbox. So it's going to be a problem for some applications that were built based on Apple's previous advice about best practices. Now that advice has changed and there may be kind of a rocky road for some apps to get themselves within the sandbox, uh, simply because some assumptions are just baked into their design. And it's not as easy as just giving yourself a list of entitlements that you that you need or breaking your application up into pieces. Uh, so I think that that covers sandboxing. It's
0: and I wonder How, Apple, how important is, is this to modern operating systems? I mean, is this something that's sort of critical that they all need? Or is this Apple doing something extra that, that's not required? Is this innovation? I mean, t- what's your take on this? Is this well, like, about, like an about-time kind of a thing?
1: Well, Like a lot of the things in Lion, all this was field-tested in iOS. So they're not kind of flying blind. Like In iOS, they have a system where applications are by default even more restricted. They have, don't have full access to the file system. They they are confined to their own little world. They're very, very restricted and, and not in a very configurable way. Uh, and so what they're trying to say is, well, we found that can work, that people can write applications that that that, uh, that users like being severely, severely restricted. And they're saying, well, the Mac is the Wild West. How do we get from the Wild West to something closer to that? And so this is... Them trying to move the Mac in that direction, and to their credit, they have taken the lead in this. Even in previous versions, like in, in Snow Leopard, Safari was made to split up uh, like uh, Internet plugins, like Flash and everything, into separate applications, so that when they crash, they don't take down the whole app. Uh, and any because uh, obviously Safari is one of those applications where security is critical because you're constantly on the web, reading data from uh, unknown sources all day long, uh, and in Lion, they've done the same thing where you know now the QuickTime application has, has a sandbox executable for decoding. The, the PDF rendering is pushed off into a separate application by the, the framework that does that of the preview application. Uh, they're using WebKit 2, which further separates, uh, not just separating plugins and separating uh, uh, video decoding and stuff like that, but also separating the rendering process itself from the actual Safari application. So it's getting to the point where Apple's applications are just shells for other services that are spawned off in other applications. And they're starting with the ones that are most vulnerable security-wise. There's been tons of PDF exploits, so they they wanted to make sure that their PDF rendering was isolated. And, of course, web exploits, they're constantly making Safari uh, more resilient to this. So I think it's inevitable, and it's not a surprise that they're doing it. It's not an about time. I think it's pretty much on schedule because there is a mismatch between the traditional expectations of desktop applications and what iOS apps can do and they do want to herd desktop applications in that direction. There's so many different angles in this. There's the security angle, there's the stability angle, there is the simplicity angle in terms of if we can confine applications to a specific directory that the user doesn't have to know about, then they don't have their files scattered all over the place. iCloud will go further in that direction because in iCloud, if you want to make a file ubiquitous, which is their, their terminology for a file that appears on all your different machines, like put it in the cloud, the local location of that file on your file system on your Mac is supposed to be uh, immaterial. Like you, you can find it and know where it is if you're interested. But once you, once you put it into the cloud, you're not supposed to really care where the document is on your file system. Uh, if, if for example, an application, if all of its files were in File Cloud, or File Cloud, and <laughs> if all of its files were in iCloud, <laughs> uh, they would not have to have full access to the file system. They could be sandboxed like an iOS application is because that's what iOS apps are like. Their files have to be within their little little world. Like they, they can't reach into other applications' files. And that, that's limiting from a sharing perspective, but it, it's great from a security perspective where you can't mess with other applications. So if a Mac application was 100% dedicated to iCloud, it could behave like that too. Now, I, there is, there's an opposition to this, which is, well, what about application or what about files that I use in multiple applications? What about like a PDF that I want to open in PDF Pen to edit, but I also want to open it in a preview, but I also open it in my web browser occasionally, or open it in some sort of ebook reader application? A, a single PDF can be opened in many different applications, and you can't you can't have it just confined to the preview applications, little, little iCloud document mobile document sandbox area because then how would the other applications see it uh so the mac is different from ios and apple's going to have to walk that line between security and stability and not having to worry about the file system but also acknowledging that you do need to share applications between uh you need, you need to share data between applications on the mac uh, and, and i would argue that you you need to do that in ios as, as well a lot of people have complained how annoying it is that once a PDF, for example, gets sucked up into iBooks, if you want to open that PDF in another application, it's not quite as easy unless you go back to the original email that it came in and, and you know, tap and hold down and say open in another application. Uh, it, it'll it be an interesting balancing act. Uh, but right now we're still in the early stages. And I th- I think for the most part... Mac applications should be able to adopt sandboxing without freaking users or developers out too much, with a, cu- with a couple of exceptions surrounding Apple events and other applications that want to do more interesting things. You, with all these things, you don't want Apple to get too draconian about the restrictions because you will be eliminating interesting applications that do things that are outside the bounds of sandboxing, useful things that you would want to do. Like, for example, SuperDuper obviously needs to read every single file on your disk to make a clone. But if Apple was to decree that all applications must be sandbox, only sandbox applications can run. And by the way, that entitlement where you want to read every file on disk, we're not letting you have that. Or SuperDuper is already out of the Mac App Store because you need admin privileges to read every file on the disk because normally you can only read your files. What about the files right. of the other accounts? So, no, one, I don't think anyone would argue that SuperDuper is not a useful application. It's a tremendously useful, but it doesn't fit within Apple's worldview right now. Uh, and it would be a shame to see more applications that are interesting and useful get pushed to the side because they're not in the 80% of like an application that you open text files or audio in or some simple thing like that. So I think that's uh, my take on sandboxing mostly good, but uh, it all depends on how Apple handles the rollout and execution and how developers handle it.
0: And you're, you're feeling optimistic about that in general though, right?
1: Yeah. Because like where they're doing it now is where it makes so much sense. Like I want, safari to be chopped up into little pieces in sandbox i want pdf rendering to be off in a separate process and all that other stuff from a user's perspective all those things are good and i will be happy when when i if i download a little mac application that lets me edit audio or something that it doesn't need full access to to the file system it doesn't need to be able to turn on the camera or the microphone on my monitor and all sorts of, the, they're, they're entitlements for all sorts of stuff like that. Right. And I, I'm, I'll be glad that Apple is making sure that an application, some simple application like that, like a game, doesn't need to do things that are way outside the realm. It's it's, it's malware protection, basically. So that that's a good use of Apple's power. Uh, and, you know, as long as they avoid the bad uses, I think it'll turn out okay.
0: You know who's a really a big proponent of sandboxing? Who's that? Sourcebits.com. These guys make uh, amazing software. Software design, development services for iOS, Mac. They even do Android. Do you know if Android has a sandboxing? I don't know. anyway, they also do web stuff. They're they're a bleeding edge kind of a company. They they're on top of this. This stuff we're talking about now that's new, they've they've been this is their this old hat for them. And their deep experiencing successful track record will ensure your idea. Because you go to them with an idea. That's what these guys do. You go to them with an idea, you say, I have an idea, I don't I don't know what to do. I have this great idea. And they said, Don't worry about it. We'll make you a visually stunning, world-class app in no time. They have the know-how to to do this. And they'll save you time and money by getting it done right the first time. They're very—I'm serious. They're, these guys—they're cutting edge. These top men. If you want something done, and this is the thing, people show up with an idea and they say, "Well, I, I guess I have to go out and interview iOS developers. I guess I have to go on Craigslist and uh, and, and and hire somebody or whatever." You don't. I mean, I'm not saying don't do that. typical projects that's not how you want to get started you just call these guys you go to sourcebits.com you tell them look I heard about you guys on hypercritical set me up give me a good you know get get me going here and in in days you'll have a prototype app up and running and working it's amazing so check these guys out sourcebits.com they do web apps too don't forget about that check them out tell them we send you sourcebits.com check it out they do sandboxing
1: yeah everyone will I think the The motivation to be in the Mac App Store is very high, Uh, and if an application can conceivably be in the Mac App Store, according to Apple's rules, most developers want their app to be there at this point. Uh, Even if they still sell it separately, they they, they want to be available in as many markets as possible, and the Mac App Store has been driving sales for people.
0: So what's I next? Think, what are some of these other things you want to talk? Because I still think, you know, I still think people want to hear more about you, your rants on the, the user interface. Have you, have you been using Lion now yet as your primary?
1: Oh no, it's, it's going to be a while before I upgrade.
0: A while, why? What apps are you waiting for?
1: I still have to figure out what I'm going to do with Quicken. I really don't. Is it that it doesn't, it, does
0: Quicken just not run? Is that the problem? It just won't run it or what? Just it
1: just doesn't run, does not launch. It
0: doesn't period. launch.
1: So I need to either. Do you, and you
0: use Quicken for your personal finances.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I need to figure out what I'm going to do there. I Start auditioning applications. I need to figure out what I'm going to do with Photoshop because I don't like not having Photoshop on my system. I do have a copy of Acorn and a couple other programs that I purchased, but I kind of like Photoshop even though I use one eight thousandth of its functionality. I'm used to it, uh, and occasionally I do use one or two of the more advanced features. So I got to figure out what I'm going to do there. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm collecting updated versions of applications now. Uh, I've I've got an updated version of MacFuse. Uh, some of my open store stuff I'll probably rebuild. I don't know. It's going to be a while. And at work, it's a similar issue where I have to use disk encryption at work, but I don't know if the, if work has yet approved Apple's disk encryption. So this is what I was going to ask you.
0: We we spent a lot of time last week, John, talking about the encryption, mm-hmm. and then you came out with uh, a link. I didn't. I dang it! I didn't put it in this week's show notes. But it's a great link. Somebody actually ran some benchmarks. They actually have some legitimate benchmarks showing how much of a performance hit you will, you will feel. And it was bigger than you made it uh, seem, to be honest. Well,
1: I did two links. I was just basically posting links that other people sent me. I don't know the providence of these things or what, how extensive the testing was. But if someone sends me some information with a graph, I'll, I'll retweet it. Right. All
0: you, all you need to get John to retweet something is send a, have a graph on the page and he will retweet you.
1: If it's something useful. So the first one showed that read performance was not really impacted, but write performance was like uh like fifty percent reduction. Uh and so I just posted that. I not there was no explanation accompanying it. It was just like this guy did this testing, he's the benchmark he is, here's the graph he's produced. That's a lot
0: um, though, fifty percent.
1: Right. So a little bit later someone else produced another graph that showed a much, much lower hit with a different SSD on a different system. I don't even know if the benchmark was a shame, showing that reads were not really affected that much and writes were barely affected. And that was a dramatic difference from one guy's testing on his machine with his SSD to another guy's testing. So just go, I mean, were the benchmarks different? Is it because the SSD hardware was different? Is it because one had different drivers that, you know, I I make, <laughs> people can draw their own conclusions. I have no information about these two people's benchmarks or what they mean. Now I did see some interesting theories Uh, One thing to understand about SSDs is that they have to write data in big honking blocks. Even if you just update like one byte somewhere, they can't just go in there and twiddle the bits in that one byte. What they have to do is take an entire region. I forget how big these regions are, what they're called. this correct terminology. If you go to the Wikipedia page on SSDs or flash storage, they have to wipe the entire region and rewrite it with the change inside it. Uh, So as you can imagine, uh, doing writes could potentially be a lot slower than uh, than doing reads if you have to erase some big giant region before you write it in there. And one person's theory was that a lot of uh, SSDs have firmware on them or you know, chips that try to figure out just, just the deltas between what's there now and what you have. And they try to be more efficient about just writing the deltas, even though they have to clear the entire area. Uh, and since when you just change one or two little bits, uh, if the underlying storage is encrypted, the entire block could actually change and not just this one or two bits because in, in the unencrypted world, you change one or two little bits, but when you re-encrypt it, the whole freaking block has changed. And so then you have to actually, the diff is 100% no matter what you change, even if you just change one byte in this area. That was one theory I heard some guy put forward to why the write performance would be so massively affected. The reads wouldn't be as effective because if you are just saying read this, it just comes right off the disk and gets decrypted. So it, it would mean that it's not the encryption and decryption process that's slowing it down, but it's the fact that Changing one byte in the decrypted world means changing in the making the entire block different in the encrypted world, and so that that would account for the writes being so much slower. But but again, the the, the second test that showed the writes weren't as slow, maybe that's a different set of firmware, or a smaller block size, different kinds of flash. I don't know the details. So all I'm saying is that if you have concerns, remember that encryption is always reversible. You can encrypt a small disk and do a benchmark on it yourself with your actual dis- SSD. Or you could encrypt it and change your mind and decrypt it, or you could just, you know, take a hands-off approach and say I'm not going to I'm not going to try this until I see more information. A lot of people are saying, Hey, I heard John recommending encryption, so I'm going and doing it. That's all well and good, but remember, I also <laughs> I'm also not upgrading my own computer. I'm also recommending making really good backups, and you know, don't don't just do something because I say so. You're not absolved of responsibility of using these features because I said it was good. Uh, you have to do your own due diligence and really decide based on what you know for a fact whether whether this will hurt your particular usage
0: see i actually disagree i just do whatever you recommend and i assume that you're going to vet it and and pre-qualify it and if you yeah, say I mean, that if you say that you do it it's good enough for me
1: well I mean, yeah, that's the wrong.
0: value of the show john
1: all, that's all the value that, of the show
0: right. is if you, if you come in you roll in and you're like well this is what i do i'm i'm, I'm, I'm gonna do that
1: I'll say I did run it for months and months on all the dev builds and never had a single problem, but you don't have the same hardware as me and you're, and I certainly wasn't doing any disc intensive operations. So, you know, all all I'm saying is that I never noticed a performance hit in my casual testing uh, operations. It it is reversible. Make a good backup, encrypt your disk, let it go overnight, run, run the thing for a day or two. If you don't notice a speed hit and it works fine for you, then you're fine if if you think it's bothering you or causing a speed hit then you can reverse it a lot of people are giving false positives on it like where uh gus mueller i think the guy who makes uh acorn and voodoo pad and a bunch of other applications flying meat software he tweeted that he had encrypted his disk and was going to reverse it because it was making everything much slower and then a couple minutes later he tweeted actually it wasn't the encryption because i decrypted and things are still slow and i got to figure out what this problem actually is so Anytime you change anything, there's a tendency to blame blame any problems you have on whatever it is that you just did. So, yeah. you know, do good A/B testing, do benchmarks if you want, or just wait on the web to see people do better benchmarks. Uh, I'll
0: just actually, wait for I'll just wait for you to say what to do.
1: Yeah, I, I'm not going to encrypt my Mac Pro because at home because it doesn't move.
0: So do you ever worry, do you ever worry somebody might break in your house while you're gone and like get on your computer and or take the whole computer, take the they, whole thing.
1: It could happen. I don't think there's anything on there that, you know.
0: You're Quicken? Quick, yeah. You go Quicken?
1: Yeah. So not, there's nothing in Quicken. Anyone who's interested in my finances would learn all about my finances. But mm-hmm. not like my passwords are all in there or bank passwords or anything. It's just an accounting of money in various accounts. All I
0: know is I want to get in there and see your Quicken. Yeah. I wouldn't steal anything. I would just look around, poke around in there. Benevolent hacking.
1: Yeah. I don't worry too much about it. People bring I I live in a very low crime area, thankfully. That's good. So you want to do uh, HFS plus disc stuff?
0: H, you know, I like HFS uh, plus discussions because, well, I I thought that was one of the areas that we didn't get to cover last week, and that's something that is very. I mean, maybe we make this our final topic, uh, but I I think, I think this is very much an interesting interesting thing to talk about for me because you know if you think back to the the olden days hfs was ahead of its time hfs was great hfs used to be a, a really wonderful file system that did things that few few other file systems uh were capable of am i right
1: yeah it was and it for its time so, not so much cutting edge in terms of the file system particulars but in terms of what The file system decided to support, you know, all. Well, I mean, think about this: resource forks and stuff like that. Think about
0: this. Let's go back in time. Let's go back in time to, I guess, we're talking about System Seven on the Mac. And what was what was going on in in the Windows world at that time? Was it Windows for work groups or just Windows three point one? I don't remember, but it was something like that. It was, you know,
1: you have you have to go back much farther than that. HFS was released. No, I'm not saying HFS. I'm
0: just going to point something out. I'm just going to point something out at that time period. Is that well Windows was in the three dot one time Microsoft dos ms dos, and then you'd type win to launch windows and you couldn't you couldn't do things in Windows at that time, and there's a lot of people who they weren't even alive they weren't even using computers if they were alive at this time period I mean we're talking a long time ago the listeners that might have never gone through this and i'm sure you went through this kind of thing on the mac if if you wanted to you could put You could have an app running an application, sorry, old school terms, an application They could just sit on the desktop. You just double click it to launch it and that's it. Oh, you don't want it there. You put it in another folder, you drag it to another folder. There were very, it mattered very little where things were. I mean, obviously, if you wanted your extensions to load, they had to be in in your extensions folder and your system folder. But I mean, other than that, you could put stuff wherever you felt like putting it applications while they were running, pick them up, drag them, put them somewhere else. People today are like, so what? Big deal, right? Who cares? Well, back then, I mean, that was a big deal. That was one of the big selling points of the Mac is you just stuff worked the way that the end user wanted it to work. Mac OS X, they they, they got a little bit tougher about that because it's a, you know, Unix underpinnings. So they, they got a little bit tougher. But it's still pretty good like that. But if you moved one of Windows uh, files or applications or something, I mean, it just wouldn't work. It flat out not work. I remember when I was—I used to be uh, an IT support guy, and uh, some lady called me down to her office, and she said, "Dan, you know, I'm, uh, my computer's acting really weird again. It's acting really weird. It's really weird again. It's something, doing something really weird." I said, "All right, I'll, you know, I'll come down." So I went down to her office. And, uh, it was, it was acting very weird, all kinds of really weird dialogue boxes. Things are crashing, looking around. So, you know, the first thing you do is you, you launch a windows Explorer or whatever it was back then you look and, and she had two folders at the root of her hard drive. Now this is back in, in the days where you had to have like a C colon slash windows. And inside of that, there was a windows system. I mean, it was very, you had to have certain things set up just, just so she had two folders. One was her name. I don't remember. Let's just say her name was Janine. Janine. That was one folder. Janine. And then there was another folder called Stupid Stuff. And she had, while the system was running, she had moved the Windows and the Windows system and everything. She had moved that into the Stupid Stuff folder because it was stupid. She didn't like that. She didn't want to see that at the root of her hard drive every time. So she had moved it there. Meanwhile, the machine was just going crazy. I'm not saying you could have done the equivalent thing on the Mac and everything would have worked. But... Going back to the whole file system thing, you could you could have case sensitivity, and it understood that. You could navigate the file system in a much more pleasant, much easier way, and at, a big part of that was that was what HFS allowed you to do. You could have you know certain files opening with the applications that you actually want them to, and there wasn't some registry that you would need to edit to make a change. I mean, you, give it some credit, man.
1: Well, the big innovation that I think that the original HFS had and long file names obviously because in the pc world that was not common then
0: no you couldn't you couldn't do that for real you would have the file name with the little tilde on it and well, that then... was
1: that was only windows 95 this yeah 10 years before you could have long file yeah. names the, the lack of file name extensions because there was other metadata that it used instead of file name extensions so the file name was completely in the domain of the user uh and uh, they did file tracking through unique IDs that were unique. There was a volume ID and then a file ID. So if you moved the file while it was open and applications could keep track of it because they were referencing it by its uh, unique ID, not by its names. You could move it, rename it, and the application would still know where it was. Some of these things had a little backsliding in Mac OS X. The extensions, file extensions came on. We should do a whole show on file name extension as well. I'll just yell about that, but not today. Uh, tracking files a lot of the next derived applications tracked files by paths and if you moved the file out of the way or renamed it they would lose track of it they fixed most of these things over the course of mac os 10 where they that "All right, now we have a way to track the file when it's renamed we have we have a way to hide the extensions uh we have a different system for binding files to applications we have long file names uh, like we always had but we have you know hfs plus brought unicode support in 1999 or whenever it was introduced uh, so there was a little bit of backsliding into the bad old world, and some of it we've never fully recovered from, like file name extensions. But yeah, HFS was a pretty good file system. But I'm in all of my Mac OS X reviews over the years, I've been complaining about the file system or asking when we're going to get a new file system. Or in my uh, blog and ours, I've been talking about for years and years and years about well, what about ZFS? Or even before that, Apple hired the guy who wrote the B file system for for Bos. Oh, is he going to make a new file system for Apple? So many things looking to making a new file system. And most people aren't interested. Like, they don't know what the file system is. They don't even know what I mean by a file system. They they think I mean the finder or where folders are or something like that. If you don't know what a file system is, it's difficult to explain to somebody, oh, this is the piece of software that manages where on the spinning disk or on the SSD the data for your files is stored. And when you ask for a file to be looked up, it figures out, you know, it's its keeping indexes of files and, and information about which files and what directory and what the files are named and where all the blocks that make up those files are. are. You know, that, if you don't know what a file system is, it's difficult to, to explain. So I've been complaining about this for years and nothing's been happening. Like there was, we almost got ZFS years and years ago when I think it was like Snow Leopard Server was coming out on Apple.com, it said, and a great new feature of, of Snow Leopard Server, ZFS. It's this great new file system. And this 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 made it to the Apple.com website long after there had been talk on the web that Apple was porting ZFS and Apple had posted publicly to mailing lists, hey, we want to port ZFS to macOS 10. If you want to help, come on board. We'll hire you. You'll be a contractor or whatever. Just so much momentum behind ZFS Going on to macOS ten, is ZFS for people who don't know is a file system created by Sun that was like a next generation file system that did. Yeah, I mean,
0: this was, thing did ever This thing was this was going to be the bomb. This ZFS, this is what people were like. This is what they were killing for.
1: Yeah, it was it was made for server operating system though. And it was never really a, quite a good fit for client operating system. But but the point is, Apple got so far along with this process that they actually put on their publicly accessible website that regular people could see this line item on a page listing the features of an upcoming operating system. The server one only, not the client, but it was there. But as we all know, they took that off the web page. Snow Leopard was released without any official ZFS support except for like this open source thing that you could download and install that was always buggy and, and weird. And eventually those projects died out. Uh, some people say it was because of legal reasons or licensing. Some people say it's because Oracle bought Sun. Uh, others say it's because it was not the file system just didn't Perform up to the standards that it needs to perform. It wasn't a good fit for it was maybe a good fit for servers But not a good fit for Apple's uh, Client uh, Operating system certainly not a good fit for iOS all sorts of reasons why uh, It didn't make it but the bottom line is that now we are left with hfs plus which has been uh, As I said in the review uh, macOS the macOS itself got a big reset when we went to macOS 10 classic macOS and macOS 10 have very very little in common except the branding and, and a little bit of a philosophy. The code bases are very, very different from each other. So that was a discontinuity. Uh, but we got a next generation operating system with all sorts of whizzy new features and great stuff. We didn't get a next generation file system. Instead, we just stuck with the file system that was the current file system in classic Mac OS. And, and a lot of stuff has been added to it over the years, the journaling and extended attributes, uh, internal compression, uh, and, and now they've added encryption through the core storage stuff, which is actually a layer above the file system itself. And I thought I would take time in this review finally to explain why do I care? Why, why do I think we need a new file system at all? It seems fine. If you ask a regular person, if you were able to adequately explain to them what a file system is, they'd be like, all right. Well, so the one I have obviously gets the job done because I see my files and they open and close just fine. And I could save files. And what's the big deal? So I tried to explain here's what's wrong with HFS Plus. Here's why we need another file system. Like, here's how the state of the art has moved on. I tried to avoid saying, look at this specific modern file system and things it has that HFS doesn't, because then people would just say, oh, well, that may be true. But like, if I had picked ZFS, that may be true, but ZFS takes a lot of memory. ZFS is super slow about this. Uh, logging file systems turn uh, random, uh, you know, sequential reads into random reads, and they turn uh, random writes into sequential writes, and that, and that data pattern is not conducive to my particular application and but there's so many reasons you can shoot down any other particular alternative and i wouldn't argue with them all i'm saying is that hfs plus is showing its age really badly so i listed all sorts of weird legacy things that hfs does you know specific technical details that that show that make hfs plus show its age but the bottom line is that in my daily experience using mac os 10 and everybody else's probably it's you know if i had to list the the things that are wrong with it the, the biggest one is that it's not reliable. Like if you just run a Mac for a year and at, and at the end of that year, you're on disk utility, it will probably find errors, right. not hardware errors, but software errors on the disk where, you know, this this particular note, it'll say some weird thing you won't understand if you don't understand the internals of HS+, but like, you know, Incorrect thread count, uh, incorrect extent node count, you know, some, some metadata about the way data for a particular file is arranged or the way the files in a particular directory are arranged is incorrect. And usually that data can be fixed by scanning the file system, finding the correct number and putting it in there. But if you get an accumulation of those errors or a bad one of them in the wrong place, you can lose data. Sometimes lots of data uh, one of the things i pointed out in the article is that they added hard links to directories to hfs plus i'm not going to go into explaining what hard links are but it's it's a just for now know that it's a a, a thing from unix that the mac operating system didn't have and when mac os 10 came along they needed support for hard links and then when time machine came along they used hard links to directories which is even odd in the world of unix so they needed to add support for that to their file system and the way they added it was this little directory at the root level of your hard drive, called HFS Plus Private Data or something like that, with some non-printing characters shoved on the front of it. It's invisible. You can't normally see it. You can't normally get to it, but it's there. And for every hard link, they just put a little file in that directory. And all the hard links on the entire disk and the entire volume, anyway, have a representative file in that directory. Now, when you do a Time Machine backup, there are millions of files on on a you know an average size. Uh, Mac disk and when you make time machine backups They make hard links between them so they don't have to have 20 copies of the same file if you have 20 different backups Instead they have one copy of the file and 20 hard links So if you were to count up how many hard links you have in that directory on your time machine volume You would see this hundreds of thousands of hard links all sitting in a single directory And I think even regular people can understand that if you have a single folder with hundreds of thousands of files in it That's not good Uh, it's it's pushing the limits of the file system and if you ever get any sort of corruption in that directory you're not just losing the contents of that directory the contents of that directory apply to the entire disk uh scary things like that are you know because they had to hack the implementation of hard links in, in that particular manner now there are actually advantages to this hacking implementation for example it's very fast much faster than it is on most modern file systems to enumerate all of the hardest hard links on a disk because they're all in that same directory and in fact hps plus actually stores some more information where you can, from a particular file, trace it back to all the other files that are hard for it. Another thing that's very difficult to do in traditional Unix file systems. So they've taken advantage of their hacky implementations when they could, but it's still not ideal. And it's not the way you would probably do it if you didn't have to retrofit a feature to an existing file system without breaking binary compatibility. Uh, so th- that's why I spent all this time in this review talking about HFS+, giving concrete details and saying, trying to express to regular people, here's why we need a new file system. And the, the thing I would want out of a new file system is number one, better reliability. I'd like to run a Mac for a year and then run some disk checker on it and have this checker say, of course, everything's fine because our software is correct and bug free. And the only reason you're gonna have a problem in this file system where we have inconsistent metadata is if there's a hardware problem. Like I don't want software problems to cause this is supposed to be the promise of things like data journaling, metadata journaling, uh, log structured file systems, you know, if there's some sort of horrible crash and or someone yanks out the plug on the computer, I'm okay with losing whatever two or three files were in flight at that time. But when the machine comes back up, I want the internal structures of the file system to be consistent with with each other, even if it's missing some data, it shouldn't be corrupted uh because that kind of corruption if you allow it to accumulate and you've seen this happen on people's macs where the, they'll just be using a laptop for years and years and then all of a sudden one day it won't boot or it'll be missing some file and it's not a hardware problem the hardware is just fine it's just that the, the accumulation of hfs plus metadata corruption has gotten to the point where now they've lost a bunch of data or need to recover with disk or some other tool or it's i don't think that should happen anymore and in modern file systems it, that you would be are much more resilient to this type of thing and the second thing i talk about which this this is not just hfs plus i would fault every existing modern file system except for maybe zfs and a few other ones is that file systems tend to trust the hardware stack implicitly they trust that when the application says write this bit sequence to a file and sends it off through the io layer they trust that that actually happened and the next time they say read me this region of that file that i just wrote They assume the stuff that comes off the disk is what they wrote before but they don't check they don't say well you know but they have no idea like you've you know three days later you've rebooted the computer three times when you read that section of that file that you wrote earlier you don't know what you wrote earlier so the application certainly can't check that it's correct it just implicitly accepts that oh well so the the disk and io subsystem fed me back this data this must be what's in the file and maybe it is what's in the file but is it what you wrote before you don't know Uh, and why would it not be why would why would the data be mismatched well there, there can be firmware errors with the the firmware for the I/O system, like the SATA chip or a RAID chip or any other type of thing that's between you and your disk. The disk itself can have hardware problems where some bits get flipped one way or the other. And people might say, well, that's that's paranoia. That doesn't happen that much. The the incidence of hardware problems causing data to come off the disk and being incorrect are so incredibly rare. So there've been a lot of studies on how how rare is this actually? Uh, in, in large data centers or server farms or other places that have lots of disks with lots of I/O. Uh, and it is rare, but the volume of data that we have is increasing so much that, as rare as it is, you know, it's like if you have a if you have a one in a million, you know, if the, if there's only a one in a million chance of something, that means like 300 people in China could do it or whatever. I don't, I, I'm bad at math here, but one in a million sounds like a lot, but when there's billions of people in China, one in a million, you have a lot of selection uh, if that's your choice. So, if there's a one in three billion chance, but disks suddenly expand to hold hundreds of billions of bytes. Suddenly, it's starting to become a little bit more likely, and that's what's happening with storage everywhere. The amount of storage we have is just going up, up, up everywhere. Our storage is going up, and, and we're storing things that are increasingly precious to us, like our family photos and movies, which are irreplaceable, priceless, and we don't have hard copies of because everyone has digital cameras and takes digital video and as many backups as you have. So I'll just make backups of everything. Well, if there's corruption on your disk and you make a backup of it, you're just making a backup of the corruption. You know, like if if the if that picture. Uh, your favorite picture of your son or daughter is if a couple bytes got screwed up onto it because of a hardware problem on your disk, and you make a backup of it. When you ask the disk for those bytes, it's going to give you the corrupted scrambled bytes. So now you have a backup of it. And say you have that backup and you push it to your backup online because you're using an online backup service and you do that whole thing that we talked about in the backup vortex thing. All you're doing is propagating the corruption to all of your backups, possibly wiping out older versions that weren't corrupt. Because eventually, you know, old versions of files—even if your backup service holds old versions, like Time Machine holds old versions—and some online ones have a limited window of old versions. Eventually, you, your, your corruption will push out all the old versions, and then two years later, when you try to make a slideshow, let me look at the picture of my child when you know when he or she was a toddler, and you look at that one favorite picture, and it's all scrambled. You're screwed, and it's all because the I/O system in the operating system and the file system did no verification that the data that it wrote really was the data that got stored there. Uh, this is one thing that the biggest selling point of ZFS is that it has provable data integrity where it does not trust the hardware to do the right thing. It confirms that it has done the right thing with a series of checksums at various uh, levels in, in the stack. Uh, and you say, well, so, so what? But it does these checksums and now it knows that it's an error. Why is, why is that helpful to me? Well, because ZFS will tell you that there's corruption and it has strategies that you can do to to mitigate that so one strategy is it can do a thing called ditto blocks where it writes the same data to multiple locations either on multiple disks or even on on the same disk it can write the same data to multiple locations so that if one version of that data is corrupt it will still have a good version it can repair itself and heal itself if it tries to heal itself and the healing fails then it can say, they can alert you and say hey this disk where you're storing stuff it's not doing what we're telling it to we told it to store the sequence of bytes but when we did the checksum it's not storing them it's giving us back some different data and we tried to fix it and we couldn't from our ditto block or whatever so you should do something about that so you will be alerted or you you know you could be alerted in apple's implementation the file system can tell you this device is, is failing and it has a problem you should do something about it now. And that will alert you in time to not have the backup copy of this data propagate across all your backups, across all times, across all your 30-day window, of whatever you're keeping. You can do something about it at that point instead of just silently going everywhere and corrupting everything. Uh, and of course, they can do multi-volume RAID type situations where it, it spreads your data over multiple disks. so Then you have real protection because I can say this disk is going bad. You could just yank out the disk, throw in another one, and it will you know, refill with the data. Uh, This is the type of thing that I think is not a frill and not a silly thing that only servers need, that eventually it should be a required feature of all devices that store digital data, that they should not trust the hardware. They should be trust but verified. They should have checksums in every piece of data that they put onto permanent storage and confirm that they're correct, and if they're not, notify the user. Uh, And HFS Plus only doesn't do that, and neither do many other... Uh, file systems as zfs does so those are the two those are the two biggies on hfs it's and notice i didn't even list performance or anything like that which they're a big issue there as well but but there's reliability don't don't corrupt yourself due to, when there's no hardware problem i don't want the file system itself screwing up and then there's data integrity which they're totally not touching at all do something about data integrity it, it has to be there uh, performance is the third one where there's lots of really silly things that hfs does in terms of performance that are not up to snuff with modern the biggest one is that like if anyone is writing to an hfs plus disk it's one at a time uh you can't have concurrent writes so if any other process wants to write something it has to wait because it's one big global lock on the entire catalog file of uh, metadata for the entire volume that is just ridiculous in an age of 18 cores you know if you imagine you have like a big raid setup that appears as a single hfs plus volume and you have 17 spindles you can only write to one at once because <laughs> because the file system says, Oh, I've got the global lock. Nobody else can write. You please <laughs> right. wait.
0: Pretty and, harsh. You
1: know. Yeah. So uh, all of this, I, I don't know what Apple's going to do in this area. I'd, is ZFS plus the right choice? Then maybe it isn't, uh, especially with SSDs, like the, the performance trade offs of SSDs versus spinning discs are very different. So it seems like if Apple ever did make a next generation file system or adopt one from elsewhere, it should be designed with SSDs in mind and not spinning discs in mind, because that is clearly the future. Uh, So whatever they do, it could look very different from even from any existing file system. But I think they need to do something eventually. Uh, And I don't think they can get there by continuing to retrofit stuff onto HFS Plus forever and ever, because it's already kind of creaking under its own weight.
0: Oh, that would be a good title, creaking under its own weight. Maybe. So that's it, though, John. we we got to wrap this.
1: Yeah, I know. 84 minutes in. I'm allowed to... I'm allowed to bump Gruber now because I got more downloads than his show. So he just, I could just start talking forever and he just has to sit there twiddling his thumbs. I'll tell,
0: I'll tell him you said that. Yeah. It's good to be good to be king, right?
1: Yeah. I saw a lot briefly. I saw a lot of people in the chat room asking for arc, despite you not wanting to talk about it. So maybe next week we will actually talk about arc despite Dan being tired of that topic.
0: All right. So, but yeah, so you're going to be available next week.
1: Oh no, not next week. Yes, uh, see, last last week. See, we lads, said it I was a tease, yeah, this week. because
0: last week you said no, no, I'm on vacation, and we talked about that, and here you are, stubbornly yeah. not going anywhere.
1: Yeah, no, I was confused about the dates, so this week I'm here. Next week,
0: I thought uh, it was impossible I'm for a Vulcan to make a mistake.
1: I'm not a Vulcan.
0: Romulan, whatever.
1: I'm not even into Star Trek. Come on, Star War. I'm a Star Wars guy.
0: All right, we'll figure you out eventually. It's hard to know. You change it up every week.
1: I don't. I'm consistent.
0: Well, we'll do, we'll do something. All right. You can follow, you can follow John, and you should follow him uh, on Twitter at Syracusa, Nozi. S I R A C U S A, Syracusa. I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter. We are very glad, and, and John wants you to go rate the show. So even though he gets to the downloads, he doesn't get the ratings. So this is what you do: you go to iTunes, you sign in, you uh, you find Hypercritical and you give it a five-star rating. Do you want you ratings, John, or do, you, do want. you want reviews or just ratings, or you don't care?
1: Both, preferably, but if you just want to do a rating, that's fine, but reviews are always nice.
0: So that's what you do. You go there and do that. You go to 5x5.tv to uh, to check out all the other shows that we do, and uh, you can tune in live. Sometimes you get freebies like you did today. 5x5.tv slash live, and there's a link to the schedule so you can see when we're doing it. And uh, John, I hope you have a great vacation. We won't see you next week, Uh, but when you get back, we'll try and do a makeup episode. That sounds good? Yeah, sure. All right. Yep. Have a good one.
1: You too.